Welcome to the Cold Brew Podcast. It is November 25th. I'm Dave Gasper, joined by co-host Matt Carroll. We are the editors at ReviewingTheBrew.com. And in today's episode, we're going to have a bigger focus on the minor leagues this week, and we're going to discuss the recent 40-man roster additions for the Brewers. And joining us for that discussion is our special guest this week, Garrett Green, the play-by-play voice of the Brewers AA affiliate Biloxi Shuckers. Uh, Garrett, thanks for joining us, man. How you doing? Yeah, guys, uh, thanks for having me on. I'm doing well. Just uh, waiting to find out what minor league baseball is going to look like next year. And, uh, you know, it looks like we... We might have an answer, you know, pretty soon, but I'm, I'm just going to wait until we have it. But otherwise, you know, life's good. We still have some baseball stuff to talk about. So I'm, I'm always excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as long as we have any sort of minor league baseball next year, it's going to be more than what we had this year. So that, that's going to be great to see. Um, and of the previous guys that um, you've seen, a bunch of them have just been called up to the uh, Brewers 40-man roster. Uh, Mario Feliciano, Dylan File, and Alec Bettinger all were added. The 40-man roster now sits at 39. Uh, I want to start just focusing on Feliciano for a moment. He's the highest-rated prospect of the group. Uh, You only saw him for like three games, I think it was in 2019, that he was up in Biloxi. Uh, But he had a really strong year that year. Uh, What what can you tell us from what you saw in, in that limited sample size of Mario Feliciano? Yeah, he came to us at the very end of the season. The thought was that, um, you know, he would be there for the playoffs to be a designated hitter for us to give us an extra bat. Obviously, you take a look at his MVP numbers in the Carolina League. I think he had like 80 RBIs and um, obviously there was a lot of pop in the bat. Um, I think he had somewhere in the vicinity of like 14 home runs and just um, the the power numbers were all there for him. And And his first hit that he had, um, with Biloxi was actually um, a triple out what? into the right field gap if, or the left field gap, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he hit it. He hit it hard enough to where generally it, the ballpark there here in Biloxi is a little deceptive because it, it seems so short because it's 325 down the lines and 350 to straight away. But then it gets really deep out towards the power alleys and towards center field. So he put one over a guy's head. And I, I think that people don't appreciate that Mario actually has some some decent speed for a catcher. Um, but just overall, um, you, you know, he came up and he, he handled double-A pitching really well. He actually ended up being forced into duty for us for the last, you know, three games of the, the Southern League Championship Series because – you know, we were so injury bitten, unfortunately, in that that last series. Um, but Max McDowell, who'd been our catcher, you know, most of the season, he was our primary guy. Um, he went down and was unavailable. So Mario stepped up in game four. He had a couple of RBIs that were really big for us in the win. And, and he, he also was the primary catcher for that game. And I think that that was impressive because it was a game that, you know, Wisconsin native Cam Ragnar pitched. Um, and, and he, he did a really good job calling the game. He was working with Max and and with Bob Malacky, who was our pitching coach there in, in 19. Um, and, and to see how he attacked a, a really good Jackson generals lineup that had guys like, you know, Paven Smith, who, uh, you know, I think made his debut this year with the diamondbacks. They had a guy like Dalton Varsho who also made his debut with the diamondbacks and, and calling, a pivotal win or go home game behind the plate was one of the most impressive things to me that he did last season. And that's, that's certainly the area that I think there needs to be improvement on um, is his, his ability to, to call games behind the plate. 
But you also have to remind yourself that he's 20, just turned 22 years old, I think, mm-hmm. um, the day he was added to the 40-man roster. So those are things that, as he continues to work with guys in the Brewers system, continues to work with the likes of Charlie Green, um, he'll he'll get better, and, and you're going to see him get a lot better. So, yeah, I think that's interesting you bring that up because that is the one knock, if anything, that's been on Feliciano. You know, he and Peyton Henry were the guys down there um, at high A, and it was Henry's the defensive guy and Feliciano's the offensive guy. And then his offense is kind of what set him apart. But um, the reports were that his um, defense in working with the Brewers catching instructors in the system has improved. Um, did you get to see a little bit of that? I mean, what what did you kind of get to see with, um, from a defensive standpoint? You know, unfortunately, just again, because he came up for our last series that we had on the road in Birmingham and then um, was just there for our two playoff series, I didn't really get to see a lot of it. Because by that point in the season, too, you're not doing a ton of fundamental drills and things along those lines. You know, the the highlight that I saw from any kind of coaching was um, in our game five heading into that day against Pensacola, like our manager was hitting shirtless fungos just because <laughs> that was how he was trying to keep the guys loose. There wasn't a ton of, of, of hands-on coaching. And I think by that point in the season, you know, you're, you're looking to make minor tweaks with guys. You're not working wholesale changes because you've already had – you know, 140 games during the regular season. So there's not much else that you can do with them at that point. So I, I, I think that um, that that's something that we were hoping in, in 20 that we were going to be able to see with Mario and also with Peyton when he eventually came up to the team. Um, so I, I can't speak specifically about how he came along and, and seeing those kind of training sessions. But I do know that in the limited time that I saw, there's certainly promise for him behind the plate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he was projected to start at Double A um, in 2020 before the minor league season uh, ended up getting canceled. And I mean, now, like, I mean, he was at the alternate training site uh, pretty much the entire season. And now he may, you know, when they start up in 2021, he may end up at Triple A just to kind of start off, and he may end up skipping Double A almost entirely. Yeah, there are there are a lot of guys that I was really looking forward to, not just in the Brewer system, but all throughout minor league baseball that I was looking forward to seeing in double A in the Southern League this past season. And now I'm like, well, they're just going to probably start the year in triple A. And some of those guys, you know, made a jump straight to the majors this year. Um, It's just (laughs) pandemic and and the shortened Mm -hmm. season just kind of throws everything out of whack. Um, But I I would expect. And again, these are conversations they're going to have inside the building. But I would expect on the 40 man, you also have to take a look at the way that rosters have been trimmed and the guy, the the volume of players that have been let go, and then the volume of guys who haven't been signed. With the draft only being what five rounds this year, yeah. um, you know, there's not as much organizational depth as there usually is. So that will probably push some guys up a little bit quicker to get to the Triple A. Yeah, absolutely. We'll probably dive into um, like that whole thing um, when it comes to like trimming down the rosters and what Rob Manfred is trying to do to decimate minor league baseball later. Um, <laughs> so I want to I want to talk now about a guy that you've seen a little bit more, Dylan File. Uh, yeah. In 2019, 2.79 ERA in 14 starts at Biloxi. Uh, dude's got 60 grade control according to MLB Pipeline. Yeah, that's not right. Uh, the, yeah, <laughs> that's low. That's a little, low. little bit low. Oh, 
Yeah, oh, that's low. Yeah. Love so, to hear that. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's a guy that you know Matt and I have really kind of been pushing for it, reviewing the brew for at, at least like a year or two now. Um, you know, obviously, like you said, great control. Um, what else can you tell us about what you've seen from Dylan File? Well, so I got really lucky that with both Dylan and um, Alec, I had both those guys in 17 in Helena. So I saw them Ooh. when they first came into the organization, and I was impressed by both of them in rookie ball. And um, I I thought that I would see both of them at some point in 19. Um you know, when Dylan came up right before the All-Star break with the season he'd had at Carolina, I was I was not surprised at all. Um, Alec was obviously a surprise to be with us in, in, in Biloxi in 19, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, with, with a lot of guys, when they make a jump up a level, like there's an adjustment period. I think with everybody you see that. Um, the, the prime example for that in the Brewer system, unfortunately now he's with the A's, is Trey Shupak. If you look at... Shupak's numbers, every time he went up a level, it was like, all right, first, you know, three weeks, there's an adjustment, but then you you clip it from there on out and you can see where he figures out where he was at. Mm-hmm. Um, with Dylan, he got promoted and it just seemed like he got better and he had no drop off and he just kept on climbing. Um, he does, you know, it, it, when he was here in 19, he didn't throw, you know, 94, 95. Um, in talking with him and with Noah Zavallis um, during the, the, you know, the shutdown into the 2020 season, it seems like he added velocity in, in the offseason with a velocity training program. So now you go from a guy who was throwing, you know, 90 to 92 to where now I think he's sitting more. 90 like 93 to 95 with his fastball and so that plays even better but i i asked him i had an opportunity we we did a a thing during the initial part of the shutdown where we did a rewind and watch back through his um start that he had against pensacola in the playoffs game two after a 12 inning game the night or a 10 inning game the night before um and he goes out and he almost throws a complete game shutout uh he gave up the shutout in the ninth inning to Royce Lewis, number one pick yeah, in the draft well, a couple of years ago. Yeah, fair enough. On on a ball that he or no, it was Kirilov is who he gave up the home run to. Also, oh. the first round yeah. pick of the draft. Um, but watching back through that with him, um, he was talking about the the way that he had progressed through the season and the way that he he handled and approached hitters, um, and it was just fantastic to hear. You know, him talk about that. And, and the thing that I asked him was, you know, the, a lot of these pitches, because he'll throw you first pitch curveball, first pitch slider, first pitch. Like, it, it doesn't matter. But his delivery is so easy and repeatable. And I asked him, I was like, are you how much effort are you giving on these pitches? He's like, I'm not a max effort pitcher. He just he just wasn't. And and so to think that he had a little bit of an extra gear and maintain that control and bring up his fastball. That's what's so exciting to me is that everything comes out in essentially the same arm slot and he's got so much movement on his breaking balls and he knows how to handle counts that it's nice to see a guy who's a true pitcher on the mound and the way that he attacks the game. I heard about it from a guy who had him in the, um, in a collegiate summer league who happened to be a broadcaster with us in, in or a broadcaster in the pioneer league in 17. And he said, you know, with Dylan, he, he thinks about swing planes and he's thinking about how to attack hitters that way to find holes in their zone. 
And I know that I'd see him on the bus and he'd be journaling about his previous starts. That way, when he went back and faced the team the next time, he'd be able to to go back and pull on that prior knowledge from the last time that he saw them. So I, I think everything about the stuff, the control, the character build, and and the mental side of the game is is just so impressive. And And this is where... The way that the Brewers scouted and found him and got him out of a school like Dixie State is is just I think that this could be one of the all time gems that they have. And I know that that sounds like massive hyperbole, um, but I think that you talk about a guy that you can find from from a lower tier school like that um, who can turn into a really good major league pitcher. And I think I think that that's legitimately what they have. I, I mean, we we know it's got that crazy high grade control and that's you know translates perfectly to that crazy good strikeout to walk ratio 136 to 22 combined between the two levels last year um and you mentioned he's you know mid 90s roughly fastball um for though you know we're gonna have a lot of listeners who are unfamiliar with him um you mentioned slider curveball but like what does his you know overall pitch mix kind of look like what does he use a little more than others i mean it's it's gonna sound like a cop-out but it's he didn't favor one more than the other. He, it, it was any pitch, any count. Um, his curveball has a lot of um, vertical movement to it, but it also sweeps a lot as well, you know, from right to left. Um, you know, his slider was really tight. And then he, he had a really good changeup. And I think that, um, I think most of our pitching staff had a really good changeup in Biloxi in 19 because they had Bob Malacki there and and that was the pitch that Bob really harped on. I know that um, you know Bettinger talked about how much better it got. Um, and File would have had Bob a little bit at the end of of uh, 18, if I'm not mistaken, when he made a little bump up to Carolina. Um, Bettinger had him in Carolina as well. So I, it, you know, it's not a, it wasn't one pitch more than the other. It was it was just legitimately like first pitch curveball in for a strike. Um, and and he could just keep guys off balance like that. Um, so I, I can't say that I know what the, the breakdown was evenly. I, he definitely is going to go fastball first, um, but he's also not going to walk a guy. And I think that that's, you know, he's like, I'd rather throw it right down the middle and make him hit it a mile then give him a base for free. And that's kind of an attitude that's that was pervasive throughout our entire starting staff for, you know, the 18 and 19 season in Biloxi is that our guys just hate giving up walks. Zach Brown hated giving up walks. <laughs> Shupak did not want to walk a guy. File was the exact same way. Bowden Francis was the same way. Um, you know, Benger was the same way. Like, they just... They're they're gonna come right at you with their stuff, and they don't want to give you a free base. And so that's that's also part of where that walk to strikeout ratio comes from. Um, is that on three one, he wasn't gonna try and get you to maybe chase a curveball down on the dirt. Like whatever he was gonna throw, it was gonna be a strike. And and if you hit it, well then, hats off to you. But for the most part, good luck with it. I think that's a good philosophy. Not walking yeah. people. I, I like it. Personally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As someone who has seen not not even in minor league baseball in, in rookie ball, but in other levels of, of baseball, throwing the ball over the plate is massively underrated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember in the in the first few weeks of the Northwoods League um, when I was broadcasting in there when it was all the replacement players from like your D2, Juco, whatever schools. 
And it was just uh, some innings would take a half hour and you'd only have one person make contact. Like it's, yeah, those were some rough times, but we, uh, we got to go up because Mississippi state played at our ballpark um, in, at the, in March, actually the day that everything shut down, we had, you know, Mississippi state and Texas tech at the ballpark. Um, We played that night. I guess it was the day before. Um, And, we got to go up to Starkville to see Mississippi State play Oregon State, and we got a stadium tour from the folks there because we were trying to figure out how we were going to run things down in Biloxi to match what they do in Starkville. It's like we got a tour of the entire facility there at Duty Noble Field, and we got down to you know the, the Triple Crown Club that they have down there, and we look up at the TV, and it's like the top of the fourth inning. And my partner or my buddy who was with me is like, how are they only in the fourth? Like they have a pitch clock. And I said, just because they have a pitch clock doesn't mean it makes you throw strikes. So <laughs> uh, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned um, the, the focus on the changeup um, down there in that Biloxi pitching staff with the, uh, with the pitching coach. I, I think that was something that Devin Williams really took to heart of that group. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say so. That was, and I keep telling people, um, y'all, like, he throws a pretty good slider. I Oh. I'm telling you, he's got <laughs> it. He, I know that when he got to AAA and then to the big leagues, because then at, for the playoffs, he came back to us for our series against Pensacola. And I got a chance to chat with him, and I asked him, I was like, okay, the seams on the major league ball, like, how much are you throwing your slider? He's like, I've thrown it twice. And I bet that he didn't throw it at all in 2020. I think he just went fastball changeup. He obviously has that incredible changeup that has justifiably drawn a ton of attention. Um, but, but yeah, he's, he's got a slider somewhere. I don't, whether he, he throws it anymore or not, who knows, but, um, no, the, the changeup for sure with Bob and, and with, um, the coaching staff, because, you know, Devin would have worked with Bob in, 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 uh, 18 down there in Carolina as well. So I think that that's you know certainly a piece of it for the incredible campaign that he had this year. Yeah, and the fastball changeup combo he's got—I mean, it works pretty well for him. Oh you know? yeah, you know when you go <laughs> 83 on a changeup that's got a couple of feet of you know vertical break, not to mention yeah. the horizontal movement, and then you come back and pump in 98, 99. Yeah, that that'll work for you. Yeah, who needs a slider? <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, it's yeah. I'm telling you, it's there somewhere. Yeah. Man, that that'd be something to see to see him break that out in 2021. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that, that's exciting. So I want to um, dig on Alec Bettinger now. Um, you saw him a bit more. Bluck. He had 26 starts there last year, 3.44 ERA. Another guy, MLB Pipeline gives him 55 grade control. I'm assuming that's a little low as well. Yeah, that's just a little bit low. Um, I'm, I think the file probably had a little bit better control than he did. I'm not trying to offend Alex. So don't oh. don't take that out of context. Um, but uh, no, they. I mean, both of those guys were. They they fill up the strike zone, which is really not nice, as I've said. So then, same question with him. Um, what are uh, fans gonna see? when he is on the mound in terms of, you know, picks, pitch, sorry, pitch, mix, speed, anything like that. Yeah. So he throws a, um, he threw a fastball and then he threw, he threw a cutter, which kind of acted like a slider. So that was, that was his big pitch that he developed. Um, So it was, it was a cutter with like 
86 to 88 mile an hour velocity. So it, mm. it kind of it it kind of played halfway in between. And that's where you can also get into the semantics of, you know, I think that, and this is just my personal opinion, that even with video games and stuff, we think like, okay, if you throw a slider, like it's got this movement to it every single time, everybody throws it the same way, and that's what the pitch is. And it's like, no, <laughs> a lot of guys grip the ball a lot of different ways to get different movement on it and create these kind of in-between pitches see Devin Williams. Uh, and, and so Alec, threw, he threw a fastball and a cutter, um, obviously throws a changeup and then mixes in a curveball as well. And one thing that a scout said to me about Alec in July of 19, and that was when he was, he was really in a groove at that point. Um, because obviously his, his velocity doesn't, you know, overwhelm, um, you know, like right. some other guys do, but the, what what I had a scout who I had known for a couple of years tell me was that when he watches him, the ball has a lot of late life to it. So even though it doesn't have that, you know, 97 mile an hour velocity, it when it gets to you, it gets on top of you really fast. And then it has some movement on it as well. And that's what helped make him so successful. Um, but he throws a pretty good curveball as well and obviously throws a throws a decent changeup. But I'd say mostly for him in 19, it was that fastball cutter combination, cutter slider um, yeah. that, that he would work. Uh, and and I. I don't have it written down. I know I should have. Um, it's in my notes from the end of 2019. But it was something like if you take his first eight, his first like eight starts out of the season, not even that because it was his May 4th start. So I want to say it's like if you take his first five or six starts and cut those out and then you take out his first inning of his start against Pensacola where he faced in order um, Alex Kirloff. Um, Luis Arias, and then Miguel Sano on Major oh. League Rehab. So Arias, obviously the everyday second baseman for the Twins. Kirloff is going to be there and is a, was a great hitter at Double A. And then Sano, spoiler alert, Miguel Sano hit a curveball that was down around his shoe tops over the left field wall for a home run. Ah. But if you, if you truncate that first inning of that start out and then look at everything else, he had like a 2-7 ERA. For the rest of the season. I mean, it. there was something right there in early May that really clicked in. I think he had like an 8-3 earned run average in April. And then in May, it all locked in for him. Um, and I had a chance to talk with him, and, and he kind of said the same thing that Dylan did. The biggest thing for those guys that helped them take that next step was just being able to game plan and really putting in the work and having a plan for every single hitter and not just having a plan for them the first time you see them, but then, okay, second time around, what adjustments am I making? What did I see from them the last time around that I can attack? What adjustments do I think they're going to make that then I'm going to counter with? And that mental side of the game that gets, you know, lost a little bit sometimes that was what was so key. That That's legitimately, I asked him three or four times throughout the course of the season, and that's all he said. It wasn't that he added velocity. It wasn't that he you know, made an adjustment to where his release point one is, it wasn't his slider or his, or his cutter. It was just the fact that he figured out how to game plan for guys and how to attack hitters and work with the catching staff and work with the pitching staff, and that helped him take that next step up. So I, you know, and I think that, you know, for things like that, 
that's where you know a guy's ready to take that next step is when they have that mental side locked in because physical things, tweaks come and go. You make adjustments, you know, maybe something's not coming out right. But when you have the right mentality day in and day out and know and learn how to pitch and attack guys, I think that that's when you're ready to maybe make the next step upwards. Absolutely. Um, and we had a, we had Pitching Ninja on a couple weeks ago, a friend of the podcast. Uh, we had him on, and I mean, we were talking to him kind of like, you know, the same thing. Like, the mental side of the game is something that's really kind of underrated. Like, it's it's a mental back and forth with the hitter, and like each side trying to figure out what the other one's looking for, what they're looking to do. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, being able to be on top of that uh, can really make you, you know, better, more successful than the guy that can just go out there and chuck 98 miles an hour. Um, when you have that kind of, I suppose, pitch ability is kind of the catch all term, but yeah. you know, it, it's something that can just take someone from just a middling, uh, lower minor league pitcher to someone that's going to be in the big leagues. Yeah. And it's, it's really cool to see for Alec because he was a, he was a long reliever for, for Virginia when he was there, but think about it, you know, Alec was a 10th round pick and Dylan was either, I can't 21st. remember it's 21st or 24th. So 21st. Yeah. So think about, you know, if, if, and again, time will tell if those guys pan out, but you know, right now Bettinger would have been, you know, if they truncate the draft, he would have been at the very end of it. Um, and, and Dylan, you know, even if they go 20 rounds of the draft now, like he's a guy who doesn't get selected. And so that's a whole nother conversation for another day. But I, th- I think that that's a testament to the scouting department to find those guys, because there's a lot where you draft guys and you think, how close are they to ready? It's also good to see that at every level, guys are getting coached and are getting better. And so you draft a guy who you say, he's got good command. Now let's take that and mold him into something for our organization. Yeah, and, and command is something that you know is a little bit more um, difficult to 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 teach. So like you know when, when you already have that, it, it's great. I mean, g- getting a guy up to um, like 98 miles an hour, like you know that's something that you can't really teach. Getting to 98, mm-hmm. it's just a matter of trying to teach them control. You know, if they have 98, um, and so that's not it, it's easier said than done. Yeah. Ask several different uh, organizations about a guy like Braulio Ortiz, who was the definition of wild thing. He <laughs> would throw – he threw, uh, you know, like 97 miles an hour. We had him in rookie ball in Helena in 17, but it was like his second pitch in his warm-ups one day went five feet over the catcher's head and hit the net. <laughs> behind home plate, like throwing a warm-up toss. And oh, my goodness. So it's, yeah, just because you yeah. can chuck it, you know, and have a flamethrower of an arm, that doesn't mean you need to be a pitcher. Yeah. Brewers fans are haunted by the memory of what happened to Derek Turnbow after his bobblehead Ooh. day and how his command went. Like He, he had it for, for, like, a year when he was dominant, and then he lost it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, I mean, some of these guys, um, I, I think another one who – I mean, his command isn't like, you know, as bad as, as Braulio Ortiz there, but Angel Perdomo, big lefty, he's got the stuff, but command seems to be something that really has seemed to fail him to this point in, in his minor league career. 
Yeah, he um, he had some really good seasons with the Blue Jays. And you also have to remember that he, he bounced back and forth between being a reliever and a starter. The Blue Jays right. were stretching him out as a starter. Then the Bre- then they kind of transitioned him, and the Brewers made that transition final. Um, so I, I know that when we saw Perdomo in 19 uh, for April, he was generally around the strike zone and generally pretty dominant. Um, but – different baseball in the big leagues and, and a different stage as well. Um, but I, you know, and that's a guy that you, you know, you take a quote unquote risk on to sign as a, a minor league free agent who, you know, got, you know, released from his contract by another organization, didn't opt to add him to their 40 man roster. And you, you go out and sign him. But, you know, I, I even think that, you know, when you take a look at the way that Devin was, when he came up at the end of the 2019 season, I mean, I think he had like a, a 3.5 ERA or, or somewhere yeah. in that range. And I could tell, I was like, man, this isn't the same guy that we had in Biloxi. But you don't, it, there are some guys who do it. But you don't just get to the big leagues and continue to be as dominant as you were at double A. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, so David knows I've been waiting to ask this. Uh, we <laughs> wanted to ask you about some guys who, uh, lesser known, maybe um, could have been added to the Rule 5. Um, there's a guy that I've loved since 2019, Luke Barker. Yes. Uh, he's a re- reliever for Biloxi and then made his way up to AAA. Was very good at both levels. Grabbed a, a handful of saves uh, when he was with Biloxi as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I hoped maybe he'd be a dark horse add to the 40-man, um, but he wasn't so lucky. Um, th- is this the type of guy who you know maybe could get snagged by another uh, team here in the Rule 5? Is he ready? I think that if there's a shrewd front office that's got a spot for him and wants a reliable right-hander, that, yeah, there's definitely the possibility um, that he could get picked up by somebody. Um, I think that, you know, Luke's Luke's a little bit older of a guy um, just because of the, the path that he took to, to get to the – get into the minor leagues and get into a system. Um, and and But he is off the charts smart. Um, he is just a, and, and he's a bio, I think he's like a biomechanics guy as well. So he, he really focuses on, um, you know, the physics of how his body operates, um, to help him produce so well on the field. I loved having Luke though. We, we have just been so spoiled in our bullpen in Biloxi (laughs) in the last two years. Obviously gone by way of the AAA Rule 5 draft was Nate Greep, who we had for both 18 and 19. You could count on him to save games. But then we had, you know, Nick Ramirez at the beginning of 18, who went on and somehow didn't make the 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 Tigers roster in 20, but was a, a good piece for them in 19. Um, you know, we had Quentin Torres Costa, who I also know didn't get added to the 40-man roster, but... My bet is that the Brewers are banking that no one else is going to take a risk, quote unquote, on a guy who's coming off a of Tommy John surgery. And you only saw a little bit in the Arizona Fall League in, in 2019. You didn't really get to see how he bounced back from that. We um, have a guy like him. And then, yeah, at, at the beginning of 2019, we were so spoiled because it was like if Greep was, you know, had saved 
three games in four days, well, then you just hand the ball over to Barker, and and he was great. And then you got to the back half of the se- the second half of the season, you know, Barker goes up to AAA. Well, now here comes Devin Williams, who turns into Dave, and so you can <laughs> you can go to either one of those guys. We've just been we've been spoiled rotten in, in Biloxi. Uh, but way back to your original question, I, I think that if there's a team that thinks that he could be good right-handed relief in their bullpen, he could certainly garner a chance. But I also know that it seems like in my very limited amount of time, there is certainly worries about losing guys in the Rule 5 draft. But you also have to remember that if a team takes a guy in the Rule 5, like they have to put him on their 40-man, and that means he's got to play, and he's got to get big league service time. So you have to ask yourself, like, is this guy absolutely ready to go? Are we ready to give this guy a 40-man spot to be part of our team? Um, and I think that having that the answer to that question be yes is a lot more difficult than we generally like to think. But I'm, I'm with you guys. There are a couple of guys who didn't get added to the 40-man that I'm like, all right, Rule 5 draft day. I'm just going to sit here and you know just tap my foot until every round goes by and those guys hopefully don't get picked up. Yeah, you mentioned a shrewd organization that uh, could look at, you know, Luke Barker for pitching. I think the Tampa Bay Rays have just entered the chat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, but he doesn't throw 97, so that's, no. you know, that's what yeah, that's he, he doesn't fit that whole stable of guys that throw 97 over there. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if he's got a unique enough arm angle to fit into that <laughs> clock of pitchers that they had that we saw a lot during the World Series. Yeah. Um, Another guy that really is um, someone that could garner some interest and I think might be one of the more likely guys to end up getting taken in the Rule 5, Zach Brown. He was left off last year, wasn't selected because, I mean, he had a horrible year in AAA. Um, And then this year, apparently he was more consistent at the alternate training site. Things were looking at least a little bit better. Um, But he's been left off again, second year in a row now that he's Rule 5 eligible. Is he someone – I know he did well in double-A, under under two-and-a-half ERA and 21 starts uh, over there. But uh, do, do you think he's someone that kind of needs like a change of scenery or you know someone that could end up getting drafted as well? I think that if you had to ask me, and without diving through the entire roster, of the player who is most robbed of an opportunity – by not having a minor league system, a minor league season in 2020, to have a bounce back year, who was the player that was most robbed? Zach Brown would be my answer, hands down. Um, Zach yeah. knows that he struggled in 19, like he never hid from that fact. Um, I I know that he obviously spent some time in the pitching lab, which we still haven't seen, but everybody <laughs> talks about this. We're not going to scientist see it. lab. Yeah, no yeah. one's going to see it. If we see um, it, we're going to be killed immediately. Oh yeah, no, it's over. <laughs> it's over. You're you're going to be buried in the middle of the desert somewhere out outside of Tempe at that point. <laughs> but I know that Zach. You know, he. I I had an opportunity to catch up with him as well during um you know the shutdown. Um, I had him, Tyler Heineman, who went on and played for the Giants, and now he's going to be signed with the Cardinals, and then Dave Chavarria, who was our pitching coach in 18. I had a roundtable chat with them about the the near-perfect game that Zach threw um, back in 2018. And after the the reminiscing was over, I got a chance to just talk with just Dave and Zach. um, And the things that Zach was telling me, he 
he was ready to go this year. And there were things that he was talking about that he'd figured out and was, was ready to take care of. And, and, and I just think that he was so, I, I think that he could have pitched his way to Milwaukee this year, if he would have had an opportunity. Now you could argue that at the alternate training site, he would have had a chance to do that, but it's not the same as right. going out and dominating triple a pitching or dominating triple a hitter hitters. Um, Again, I bet that the Brewers are banking on the fact that this is a guy who, you know, from everybody else's eyes, got up to AAA, struggled a lot, and we haven't officially seen anything to show that he's rebounded from that. So that's kind of where, I, if if I had to go inside the mind of the the brain trust for the Brewers, um, why they didn't put Zach on the on the the forty man roster, that would be my thought process. Is they're Betting on the fact that everyone else is going to be a little skittish, but maybe they know that they've got a guy who's there. Um, and I do know that in talking with plenty of people, and this is, again, one of those kind of intangible things that you never get unless you're there day in, day out. The the word that everybody always used to describe Zach is just like a bulldog. He is just the ultimate competitor. He is the nicest dude that you're going to meet. If you have a chance to talk to him, um, he's incredibly down to earth and, and just a great conversation. He's, he's a really smart kid. Um, but when he is on the mound, he is, he doesn't always show it in his intensity on the mound, but he is going to scratch fight claw every single inch of the way to make sure that you know that it's his mound, it's his strike zone, it's his plate and you're playing by his rules. And there are coaches who have left the organization that still talk glowingly about how good and how much of a competitor Zach is. And I think that everybody, you know, and even Heineman said it when we were wrapping up our, our chat. He's like, I can't wait for 2020 to get going. Like redemption tour is going to come. I've got an autograph baseball from Zach Brown. That's going to be worth a lot of money. One of these days. So <laughs> they were ready for him to have a bounce back year. Yeah. And, and that's something where, um, first of all, I love the bulldog mentality. Like, like, you know, I was the same kind of thing, like on the mound, I was, was always taught, like, that's how you want to, you know, go about it. Um, but like also the Brewers did not share any like video or information or whatever from their alternate training site this year. Um, so that's something where, you know, if they had shared it, maybe other teams could have seen, you know, what Zach Brown was doing. But the Brewers kept all that information in, didn't share it with anyone, which is such a David Stearns move. Um, and I, I think I think you're right. You know that that's somewhere they're trying to keep him, but they're also just kind of banking on no one else taking the risk on him, and they don't have to use a 40-man spot with him um, because if they would have added him, they would have been at the maximum of 40, and that they wanted to add anyone else or do anything else, they would have had to cut someone else off the roster yeah. uh, prior to uh, the non-tender deadline, which is coming up in about a week or so. So I, I think that's something where you know. I think David Stearns might be, you know, playing those kinds of mind games as well, trying to protect those certain guys. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, it's a shame for a guy like Zach who doesn't get a shot at the 40 man roster. Um, but, you know, it's the long game. We'll find out who it ends up paying off for. And and look, if, if Zach gets picked up by somebody else, that's great for him. And that's a great opportunity. And it's it's tough to see one of those guys that, again, they, they took him in the fifth round out of Kentucky, and you, you want him to develop and be 
one of those guys that you can point to that was a great draft pick. But anytime that a guy, excuse me, gets to move on, um, I'm always excited to see what he's able to do if he gets a chance. Yeah. So I, I want to ask you um, if there are any like uh, other guys that you have seen down in the Brewers farm system that fans or prospect sites uh, or whatever are, are sleeping on that no one's paying enough attention to. That's actually really good, has a really good chance to be a good big league player, um, but that no one's really talking about. Man, I um, I'm just trying to think back through our, our crew that we had in 19 and, you know, they're. There are quite a few guys who who got let go. You know, I, I really liked Luis Aviles Jr. Um, he went and signed with the Angels, and then he played indie ball. Um, you know, I think that I really liked what C.J. Hinojosa did for us, and I think that he was turning into a really good second baseman. And, you know, by the end of the season, we were saying, hey, you could see this guy have a good year at AAA, and maybe he gets a chance to be a utility player. Um, I really liked Dylan Thomas, who, you know, led our team in RBIs in, in 2019. Um, he went and signed with the A's. Um, so, you know, uh, unfortunately, with the amount of culling for the roster, I, and I'm it's when I start working on my media guide for 2021, it's going to be like, OK, so like which guys are still here? Like which prospects <laughs> do we yeah. still have? Um, from those teams. Uh, but I, th- I think that guys also got, got shots in the big leagues this year. Um, so I, you know, I, I wish that I could say point to this guy, think that he's got a really good opportunity, but I, I just don't know anybody off the top of my head that I can think of that would be, you know, that guy that everybody's sleeping on. I think that the attentiveness to the farm system is there and the guys who are still in the farm system is important, is you know, about where it is. The the one guy I will say that comes to mind now, though, is um, Cooper Hummel. Smaller mm-hmm. guy, um, but he is an on-base machine, and he went through this stretch where it's like he hit like 12 home runs in 25 games, and then he didn't oh, wow. hit a homer the rest of the season, <laughs> but he got on base every game the rest of the season. He got on base. So, yeah, he was a, he had like a 26 game on base streak to end the season. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but he's got he's got pop. He's got pop to hit 400 and you know 80 foot home runs. No, not really. Like four like 440s <laughs> and. Um, but yeah, that that would be my guy. And he's kind of he played left field. They were moving him back to catcher a little bit more. But you know, if he's still in the organization next year, is going to be a toss up. And my real dark horse to play first base. Would have been Patrick Leonard, but he was also let go, unfortunately. Yeah. But Patrick Leonard should have been a gold glove minor league first baseman. Um, you know, he committed one error. It was in the last game that he played before he went down with an injury. And so he lost the gold glove um, in 19. So defensively, you know, Mike Guerrero, I said, like, he's a major league first baseman defensively. And his hitting stats had, had turned a corner as well. I, I would have been – I would have liked to have seen him get an opportunity you know, get an opportunity. They brought him back on a minor league contract for 2020, but then unfortunately in the round of cuts, let him go. So that's, that's kind of where we're at this year is, you know, we'll, if it's not a guy who's like a top four, you know, top 30 guy, who knows? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something. And you brought it up again, you know, the, the culling of minor leaguers and uh, teams having to, to release these guys as, I mean, they're going to have to cut down. The Brewers are going to have to cut down from five affiliates to four, uh, plus what they have in um, summer ball down in Arizona at the complex. 
Um, so right, I, I'm sorry I'm going to interrupt. I do have one more. I've never seen him pitch myself, but uh, I don't think he's in the top 30, but Noah Zavallis, who oh, obviously yes. was Carolina League Pitcher of the Year last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a cover story for him for our digital program, and I got to have like a 40-minute chat with him and his pitching coach in Carolina from 19, whose name escapes me now, and he's a roving coordinator with the Brewers now. Um, Noah went from like a three pitch pitcher to like a six pitch pitcher in the oh. off season and uh, from 19 into 20. And he was also in the same, you know, velo uptick program that Dylan was in. He wasn't seeing the same kind of gains that, that file was, but he also wasn't at the same point. He's a Harvard guy. So, you know, Brent Suter, um, he's a, he's a woodworker. Um, I know that he kind of <laughs> laughed at me when I asked him about that, but um you know, he's a car guy by necessity because he did so much work on his truck that he had in in 19 in Carolina. Um, so I, I I but from a pitching perspective, again, cerebral, intelligent, added pitches, adding velocity, maybe a name to keep on your radar that gets lost a little bit in the shuffle. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I am going to be ending up doing like a top 50 prospects list that, that's going to come out in like January, I think. And I'm pretty sure, like, I haven't finalized the whole thing yet, but I'm pretty sure Zavolis is going to be somewhere in that in the top 30 portion of that. Because, yeah. I mean, I was I was really impressed with uh, the numbers I saw from him mm-hmm. um, last year. But I did not know he had it. He's up to six pitches now. That yep. that is interesting. Yep. Um, but yeah, so um, just just kind of getting to like, I mean, like we we're saying, like the minor league system is is cutting down. MLB is going from like. 160 affiliates down to 120 and uh, the Brewers are going to have to go from five full-time affiliates down to four. Um, you know, th- this whole thing with like what's going on with the minor leagues um, and, and you see what basically MLB's takeover is, is doing to it. Um, how would you say like, this is really kind of impacting um, you guys like that down there, I, I'm pretty sure Biloxi's not going to get, um, cut at all, but like, yeah. how's this impacting like you and like the, the players that, that you're talking to? And I'm, um, this is going to cause like a lot of guys to essentially unceremoniously, uh, retire and, and have to give up on their dreams while they still had a chance. Well, you know, the thing is that, and, and I've had conversations with other people in the Brewers organization that, um, you know, what this means is that you're about to see some really good independent league baseball. Um, the indie leagues are about to become exceptionally good because of the talents of guys who, you know, would have been those kind of fill-in guys on your rosters who, you know, maybe turn into, um, you know, major league players down the road. But those guys now are just going to be, you know, at, at independent leagues. Um, you're right, though, the... The unceremonious part is the the most unfortunate thing. There are guys who are gonna have been let go this year that that that's gonna be it for them. They're they're probably not gonna get a chance to suit up. Um, we're we're not as concerned with you know losing losing uh, our franchise or losing affiliation with the Brewers. I think that we have a really good relationship with them down here. Mm-hmm. But again, like there are some teams that Major League Baseball has the say in that. And I know that, you know, I was reading in Baseball America today that they're supposedly the list seems like it's going to be finalized and come out next week. I'll believe it when I see it. I'm going to sit and wait and, and find out. 
But it's it's nerve wracking. You know, we've got two teams in our league who are on the chopping block. Chattanooga is one of them, and they've been playing professional baseball in Chattanooga for over 100 years. It's, you know, it's one of the most historic minor league baseball cities. And I understand that, you know, AT&T field that they have there, there are certainly things about it that could be improved. But Mm -hmm. to not even give teams an opportunity to improve is tough. And and of course, I have a soft spot in my heart for, uh, you know, rookie ball and and the Pioneer League. I loved being in the Pioneer League in 2017 when I was there. And the prospect that that entire league is just going to be gone is tough. Um, you, are there facilities that are not great? Sure. Like this uh, Great Falls, Montana does not have the greatest ballpark in the world says the guy who also worked at Kendrick Legion Field, which if you ask any Brewers roving <laughs> coach or coordinator, they've all got stories about finding rocks in the outfield and, you know, all. Uh, it, but it had character. But there are facilities, Billings <laughs> um, with deal, Dealer Park is nicer than some double-A facilities that I've been to, um, you know. And then you talk about the fact that the entire state of Montana, Idaho, Utah, like you're losing professional baseball in those in those states to where now the closest you can go from Helena to go see pro baseball would be a 15 hour drive to Denver or a 14 hour drive to Seattle. Like that's, that's the closest that you can get to go see baseball. So that's, that's what really bothers me is losing baseball and communities and, and seeing, you know, people that I know that are going to lose their jobs. Um, because they're cut, because their affiliates are cut, not because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it, it's difficult, and it's not, you know, we've had a year to get here. We've known about it for a while now. But I, I just think that, and I'm not alone in this, I think that the damage to the game by cutting it out of big swaths of America is tough because it's so much fun to say I saw this guy play when he was an A ball and you know I've got an autograph from this guy and he went on to be a gold glover and that you know that's what's so fun about this is you get up close and personal with these guys and you see them every night at the ballpark and then they turn into big leaguers and you say you know I saw him play when he was in Appleton or Clinton or you know, Columbia or, you know, Hagerstown, pick, pick anywhere. And so to have teams that are losing it, I think that it's just going to hurt grassroots baseball because there are plenty of people that they aren't a fan of the major league club, but they're a fan of, you know, they're a fan of the shuckers. They're a fan of those guys and they keep up with them when they move on to other teams. And so to lose that aspect is, not the toughest thing about it, but I think is certainly what resonates with me the most is how much people are going to lose baseball, which I, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Like I, I don't have that experience because I grew up in Arlington, Texas. I grew up with a ballpark in Arlington, 15 mm-hmm. minutes away from my house. I grew up going to major league games. I, and I didn't realize how spoiled I was until I moved to, you know, Montana and, you know, even down here in Biloxi, like, Atlanta is the closest major league team that we have. They're six hours away. Houston is six hours away. Arlington is, you know, nine hours away. 
Tampa's 10 hours away. So it's just to have professional baseball, you know, it's a good thing that we've got, you know, the Montgomery Biscuits and the Pensacola Blue Wahoos and the Biloxi Shuckers, because otherwise you wouldn't see pro baseball in this area. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just I think that so hearing all of that makes it just that much more frustrating that, you know, for hardcore baseball fans, they talk about wanting to improve the game and get more people to watch the game. And to a lot of us, it's, well, maybe market your stars better. Maybe keep improving that minor league experience. No, let's uh, do three better minimum rules and cut 40 minor league teams. Like, what are you doing? Like, it's just, it's, it blows the mind that that's, and, and I'm, sure they have their financial reasons behind whatever but i mean to to lose what made kids fans of the game mm-hmm. is just it's heartbreaking yeah that's tough it's um there there's no other way to slice it and there's certainly other things to address in the game to help fix it as well but I think that when you and I know that the plan is to have some of these communities carry on with baseball, but I just don't know how they're going to have it be the same as it was before. And I'm all about change. I'm all about, you know, trying to make sure that you you stay current and and stay out on the forefront. But I I'm with you. I don't think that cutting 40 teams is. And the other thing you have to think about is that that's losing 40 opportunities for broadcasters. For me yeah. specifically, mm-hmm. that's 40 opportunities for general managers. That's 40 minor league managers and coaches. That's you know 40 hitting coordinators. That's you know you're cu- you're cutting more than just the t- than just the the team and the stadium. Um, there are so many people that are impacted by that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm sure like there's normally like you know a lot of like you know crossover with like broadcasters like you know changing teams like moving all around. I don't. Is there that much of that going on this year? I, I wouldn't expect much. I think most of us uh, technically don't have jobs right now um, <laughs> because, spoiler alert, when there's no broadcast uh, to do, there's no reason to have a broadcaster. So I think that if guys have the opportunity to go back, they're they're mostly going to go back to where they, they have the opportunity to be. And I think a lot of front offices are going to bring back guys with, you know, who they have experience with, but no, to, to the best of my knowledge, the only thing I can think of is there are going to be guys who had a whole summer where they got to be at home with their wife and their kids and, you know, didn't have to work 16 hour days at the ballpark. And they're going to be like, you know what? I, I kind of like, kind of like being at home, kind of like having my summer. Yeah. And that would be about all that I could think of. Um, and, you know, they're going to, but there are also going to be guys who said, I can't sit around for, 18 months and not have a job and so you're going to lose guys who um, not just in broadcasting but in all fields who say i can't sit and wait for minor league baseball to come back i have to make a paycheck somehow right yeah and i mean i think another thing that that's also getting lost in all this i mean you take like those those players that are now going to be um like cut from from the minor leagues and you know, if they cut down the draft like further, because if you have less affiliates, you have less need for as many rounds in the draft. So if they go to like a 20 or 25 round draft going forward, I mean, that's so many other guys that even if they're not future major leaguers, I mean, they take that experience in minor league ball and like they'll go back to their 
to their hometowns. They'll go back to their communities and they'll teach the next generation. They'll, they'll be coaches there. And it's like, Hey, I played minor league ball. I played professionally. Um, even if, you know, they didn't make it all the way to the big leagues. And, you know, that's something that will carry a lot of weight in those communities and like help bring up, um, the next generation going forward. And, and those are other guys that, that are getting lost. And, MLB is just kind of looking at the bottom line financially and, and not really looking at how this is going to hurt the game at, at the ground level. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. So um, another thing, like with like, there's also like some sort of like realignment of the leagues that are going down. Like I, I heard the Midwest League might jump up to high A and um, like a couple other things. I saw that the San Antonio missions are dropping back down to double a, mm-hmm. which would mean that the brewers are currently without a triple a affiliate. The only known opening right now is, um, round rock. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how, um, plugged in you are to kind of that whole like affiliate movement, but do you know of like what other triple a openings there might be or, or where things might be looking? I have no idea. Um, okay. I <laughs> just wanted to check. Am, so, so for just to, like just to pull back the curtain, like I sit and read Baseball America and Jason Stark and you know Ken Rosenthal and Jeff Passan, just like the rest of everybody else, to find out what it's gonna look like and and find out where everything's gonna land. Um, I know that Round Rock's open because Houston left. Um. You know, the my guess is that they probably go back to being the AAA affiliate for the Rangers. And this is all speculation, but that means that if they're the AAA for the Rangers, that means that Nashville is open again because that's where the Rangers were before. Um, the Brewers have obviously had their their AAA affiliate in Nashville before, so that could be a reunion, a reunion that they could possibly have. But I've got no idea what the what the move is going to be like. I'm just sitting waiting like everybody else i'll i'll say this as someone who has worked with the round rock express before that was my first gig out of college was board operating for round rock express games on the flagship station there in austin it's round rocks about a half hour north um like the the express are just a phenomenally run organization so geographically round rock to milwaukee yeah that's a little far but there are certainly there are worse places that you could be for a triple A team, but no, I I'm just sitting and waiting to find out about it just like everybody else. Yeah. Well, technically I, it's like an hour and a half drive closer than San Antonio. So they're yeah. making up some ground there. It's fair. <laughs> it's fair. They're both uh, yeah, I mean, international airport in both cities. So I guess it's not much further to shuttle from one to the other. Yeah. But as long as you don't want to end up in Fresno, because everyone hates going to Fresno. <laughs> well, they're going to be high A now, or they're going to be uh, low A, oh. I think, as part of the low A California League now. The Cal oh. League's going to down. Reports are the the Cal League's going to move down to low A. The Northwest League is going to become high A, and oh. that's how that's going to work. The Florida State League's going to be low A. Um, and I think that part of the Sally League is going to become high A instead. So it'll be like the Carolina League, the Sally League, and the Northwest League are the three high A's. But I'd have is, to double is check Is Midwest on that. League going up there as well? I, I heard Midwest I, might be going high A. They might, they might be breaking the Midwest League 
up a little bit because I know that there's a lot of there's a lot of ground to cover in that league. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, if they end up going to high A, because then Wisconsin would be in high A. Then also you have the Carolina Mudcats who are high A, and then it's just they're they're gonna have to figure that out at some point too. It's a it's a whole jumble. I'm sure that by now they they have it pretty close to figured out, and we're all just waiting for them to open the envelope and tell us. Yeah, and hopefully it's not like a Steve Harvey at a Miss Universe or whatever, and <laughs> reading the wrong names. Oh, I read the wrong envelope. Yeah, I read the wrong it, name. Yeah, it, it's actually Miss uh, Columbia that like in. Uh, yeah, no, it was it was Philippines that won, and Colombia. He originally read Colombia, and then it was actually Philippines. I'll I think I was watching that live when that happened. <laughs> this is the best when you catch those moments live. Oh yes, <laughs> nothing better. No. Uh, than watching Steve Harvey literally embarrass himself, and I felt so bad for him. It's all right. He's doing pretty well. Yeah. yeah. He does okay for himself. Host of Family Feud. I think he has a radio show. So yeah, TV show. I, I think he's got a pretty good gig. Yeah. Um, I I just wanted to to quick jump on just one guy um that you saw previously that kind of came out of nowhere. Justin Topa um mm-hmm. was was an independent ball signee. Uh, ended up coming up to Milwaukee and pitched pretty well and you know kind of opened some eyes um what do you remember seeing from justin topa uh i remember the velocity that was definitely the the big thing that jumped down that was part of why he got signed out of independent league ball um and you know there certainly i think you saw it in milwaukee this year there are times where his fastball gets a little flat it doesn't have a ton of movement on the end of it and that's where he can run into trouble but I do know as well that, um, and, and one of the things that uh, our coaching staff glowed about him is that he came into a game, game one of the playoffs against Pensacola. We had just given up a grand slam to tie the game. He comes in and faces Royce Lewis, gives up a home run to give up the lead. We had a five-run lead. Um, so he gives up the lead, but then he pitches to the next six batters and retires them all in order and put us in a position to hit a walk-off home run. Um so that that bounce back ability um, was something that he he did on more than one occasion. But with with Justin, the fastball velocity was was always the thing that jumped off the page. He's got a pretty good change of pace as well. Um, I did not have Justin Topa making his major league debut on my bingo card for 2020 though, and I'm ah. just thrilled for him that he did. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. I, sorry. I had, I had just one more guy I wanted to ask you about, um, and actually more a moment than anything. We mentioned uh, Trey Shupak um, yep. earlier, and in 2019, he threw, almost threw, not one, but two no-hitters. Yeah. I actually, I actually tuned it, I grabbed the tune-in radio app when I saw the second one was happening. I actually got to listen uh, to that one un- get called and the unfortunate ending to that one. What what was it like? Just the excitement around almost getting to uh, see that. So, all right, I'll try and make this short. I have had in my two years calling games for the Shuckers, I have had three no hitters go to one out away, <sighs> which is a Ranger fan just also hurts my soul. 
um, <laughs> growing up in Arlington. Uh, no, because Zach Brown had had thrown um, a near no hitter in in 18, almost exactly a year before Trey's. Um, Trey and both of them ended in the same way. It was like a soft single to center that the center fielder just couldn't track down. Um, but then the one uh, in in July, like it just kind of become routine that he was going to throw like five, like four or five no hit perfect innings. Like it was just like, all right, it, it was no longer like, oh, he's gone nine up, nine down. Like that was just kind of what you expected from Trey. Um, but I think he also struck out nine that day against Chattanooga. And that was a Chattanooga team that was struggling, but we were playing a double header. Um, and, and when we're going to the, the seventh, cause it was a seven inning game. I was just like, all right, like, I've done this two times before. I'm ready. I know what's going to happen. And then sure enough, um, it was a single up the middle. And, um, you know, both times Trey just put it all out on the line. Um, I think he got to like 121 pitches in the game that he had in May. Uh, and so you just feel for him that he just didn't quite get over the line to get a no hitter. But um, that didn't take away anything from from both of his performances. But. Yeah, with Trey, it was just like seven innings, three hits, maybe a run, maybe it's unearned, maybe two walks, and maybe five strikeouts, like every, every time that he went out. Did you did you have your call ready to go, or were you just going to wing it if he got I, that final out? I never have a planned call, because I think that every moment is different. And mm-hmm. I, I certainly... You know, the championship series, I'd certainly thought about, you know, a couple of things and maybe had an outline in my head. But with Trey, no, I, I did not have something in my head. It Whenever it happens, it will be, you know, something along, along the lines of like, there it is, the first no hit, no hitter for a single pitcher in, in Shepard's history because we still haven't had one. We've had a combined no hitter, but we still haven't had an individual no hitter. Um, so that's that's about all I can think of is just that it'll have, you know, for the first time in franchise history, uh, Shucker's pitcher has thrown a no-hitter. But I, no, I, I did not have it for Trey. It probably would have been something along the lines of, you know, from so close to, you know, so close to now crossing the finish line. You know, he's done it. He's thrown a no-hitter. Something in that ballpark. Yeah. It's just, it's just something you figure out in the moment. You know, you just, you just kind of go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Trey Shupak. I mean, now he's with um, Oakland. I mean, got got the the DFA and ended up being a minor league free agent. Really just kind of tough to see how that um, whole thing ended um, for him, especially after, you know, so many good performances um, in the minor leagues and really just kind of working his way out. I mean, he was he was kind of the the throw in in the Jason Rogers, Keon Broxton deal. Mm. And he I mean, he he nearly. you know, it turned into the best part of that deal. I still don't know how, how um, the Brewers swung that, but, you know, get, getting two players for Jason Rogers, but, you know, works for me. <laughs> works for me too, man. And to get Keon back at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Keon's still in, a, he was in AAA or in, in the alternate site this year. So uh, maybe he'll he'll get another opportunity. So uh, I, I think that's uh, about it for this week. Garrett, hey, thank you so much, man, for, for coming on and talking to us. I had a really great time talking to all these prospects. 
Hey guys, thank thank you for having me. Like it, it means the world that you guys want to check in with me. And I I'm certainly not an expert, but you know I see a couple of things every now and then. I hope the Brewers fans are excited for what's in the minors. Yeah, I think they got a lot to be excited about. I mean, I know everyone you know kind of you know jokes about the farm system and says that there's not much there, but I mean I think there's there's some really good underrated talent in that group, and you know there, there's a lot of big leaguers in there that. You know, maybe they're not going to be, you know, all-stars earning giant extensions, but there, there are some really good players um, in that group. And, you know, it's, it's fun to kind of talk about them before they end up getting to that point. And, and, and it's fun to see them at, at such a level. Yeah, no, I think that you're going to, especially some of the guys they've taken in the last few years that are going to come through double A. Um, there's we were really excited about what. Our rotation was going to be to start the year and then what we were projecting to have by the end of the year. Those guys will continue to push up, and I think that they're going to turn into a pretty good group. Yeah, and now, I mean, you're probably going to get to see Peyton Henry um, this next year, a whole bunch of other guys. I mean, there's a really strong group coming up that that they've drafted the last couple of years that um, I'm really excited for, Matt's really excited for, and I'm I'm sure you can't can't wait to see him. Cannot wait. I will probably cry the first time that I get back on air for a baseball game. Just full disclosure, <laughs> you can bet on it now. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm excited to see it, and hopefully, uh, hopefully it's the Brewers for us here in Double A. Yeah, hope, hopefully, and you know, hopefully you'll be able to do it with a, a, a stands full of crowd, you know, full, full of full of people. You know, hopefully yeah. we can get back to that sooner sooner rather than later, um, and and get back to normal. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. All right. So thank you again, Garrett Green, voice of the Biloxi Shuckers, for joining us this week on the Cold Brew Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at coldbrew underscore pod or follow um, our site at reviewing the brew. Um, Be sure to follow at at Garrett underscore green or just at at Garrett Green. Yep. Uh, At Garrett underscore green on Twitter for... Um, all your fun Biloxi Shuckers updates and life updates from the life of Garrett Green. So <laughs> thank you once again for, for joining us, Garrett. Uh, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Cold Brew Podcast. We will see you next week. Bye.